Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of shame, sex, sexual abuse, and assault. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, is shame the worst? The answer is yes. Shame is one of my favorite things to talk about, seriously. It is the worst thing to experience, but because of its power over so much of our lives, I find it endlessly fascinating. Shame is my explanation for basically everything. And the more I learn about it, the more I think I'm right. (laughs) Well, maybe not shame specifically, but the things we do to cover up shame. The role of shame is depicted brilliantly on the Netflix show Big Mouth, where it's personified in the character The Shame Wizard. In season one, the kids on the show are struggling with puberty and their burgeoning sexuality, but are mostly enjoying learning about the exciting new things their bodies can do. In season two, the shame wizard creeps in and follows people around, telling them how terrible and unworthy they are because of their behaviors, sexual and otherwise. He is a literal shadow that falls over the kids. I love this representation of shame. It's sort of this physical manifestation of the thing we've all felt. Talking about shame is not common. Our shame is usually kept deep down inside. But it's so important to talk about shame and bring it out into the light. On today's episode, I'm joined by clinical psychologist Dr. Nancy Argueta to talk about shame and the terrible mix of shame and sex. It's enough to make you squirm in your seat with discomfort. We also talk a lot about the work of Dr. Brene Brown, the shame researcher who I believe is going to save us all. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. I am thrilled to welcome my dear friend and clinical psychologist, Dr. Nancy Argueta, to the podcast to talk about shame. Nancy is a brilliant, compassionate, badass psychologist, and she was the first person to introduce me to the work of Dr. Brene Brown back in 2015. As we will get into today, we both think that Brene Brown's work on vulnerability and shame is fundamental to our understanding of ourselves and our relationships. Although Brown is the ultimate shame educator, for me, Nancy comes a close second. I'm so delighted that she will share her wisdom with us today. Hello and welcome, Nancy. Thanks so much for that. I'm really excited to be here. Yay. So as some background, Nancy and I went to graduate school together at the University of Texas at Austin, and we had a blissful few years together, but tragically now live on opposite sides of the continent. Nancy lives and works in LA, and as you all know, I'm way over here on the east coast of Canada. We're here today to talk about shame, so can you tell us what it is and why it's such a big deal? Sure, yeah, and um, I know shame is everyone's favorite topic, right? Everyone (laughs) loves talking about shame. Um, So as you said, Brene Brown is my absolute favorite. I really love the way that she describes shame and the way all of her research, but the way that she defines shame is Um, as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Yikes. Yeah, no kidding. Some deep shit. (laughs) 
Um, so why why is shame such a big deal to us and why is it so important to our lives? That's a great question. So shame is really important and it comes up in so many different ways. When you when you think about just your everyday life in your romantic relationships and your friendships at work, um, there are so many different places and ways that shame can come up. And, and Dr. Brown talks about um, shame gremlins and and being able to call out what those shame gremlins are, which are really triggered by so many different things, right? Depending on what those shame gremlins are, that when we don't know what to look for, when we don't know that, when we can't define it as shame, um, we can end up acting out in ways that can be really damaging to our relationships or even to ourselves, right? And we see a lot of shame come up in things like substance use, mm. things like self-harm behaviors, um, when people have suicidal ideation, it comes up a ton. Even just like at, at times when I work with clients, it comes up even in, in their relationships, right? So when we talk about sex, for example, shame is a topic that often comes up. And when there's a lack of communication in partnerships, um, often it's due to shame. And so I find that ignoring shame, not calling it what it is, can lead just to so many different problems um, in our everyday lives. So super, super important work. Definitely. So you mentioned shame can contribute to things like substance use. I remember a few years back when you were working at a residential treatment center with people with addictions. Can you tell us a bit about what you learned from that experience? A lot of times when we're wanting to change behavior, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen, you know, people are going to try something, learn, you know, make relapse and then learn from it and then try it again. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, what... I found was really missing in some of the work that we were doing in, in the residential treatment facility is that we weren't talking about shame. We weren't talking about a lot of, we were, we were talking a lot about, um, okay, let's understand what your triggers are. Let's try to make sure that you're scheduling your time appropriately. Let's try to make sure that you are doing things that are important to you. But we weren't talking about what was contributing a lot to it, people um, starting to numb emotionally and mm -hmm. what they were trying to numb from. Mm -hmm. And so when we can start to talk about shame and for a lot of these individuals, they also had co-occurring PTSD um, or depression. And I mean, who, who can't relate to having shame, right? Mm -hmm. And especially when we talk about substance use for a lot of people having, you know, having relapsed several times, having felt like they were bad parents to their kids due to their substance use or bad partners or bad children. Um, that was often contributing to them wanting to hide away from their families or act out. So sometimes people would move against, which Dr. Brown talks about is, is you know, sometimes that can look like being defensive, right? Or, mm. um, or sometimes people would start to, to argue with their family members. So a lot of that was contributing to ongoing substance use. And so um, when we started talking about shame, I mean, I want you to imagine I had 30 people in the room with me and none of them wanted to talk about shame. When I said, guess what? Today we're going to be talking about shame. I had a room full of 30 men and none of them wanted to talk about it. Right. Um, and which is, I can understand that. <laughs> um, and when we did start talking about it, you know, it, 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 it was uncomfortable, of course, because it's never comfortable to talk about shame. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that it was really helpful in understanding what is the function of some of the behaviors that come from shame, mm -hmm. right? Um, because so, <clears throat> you know, we, we, when we were really looking at what the function was of the behavior, um, 
it made sense, right? Because it was being used, to, some of the, the behaviors that were coming from the shame were being used to regulate for shame, mm. right? So mm. if I feel really crappy about myself as a parent, and I don't want to feel that, mm-hmm. what, I, what I do is I'm going to go back to what I know makes me feel comfortable, right? Or what, what helps me regulate emotionally or numb emotionally, which is whatever my substance of choice is. Or, you know, for people who haven't had um, issues with substances, it can be food, it can mm-hmm. be social media, it can be sex, it can be, you know, whatever, Um it can be overworking. It can be overexercising. So people uh, get very creative about how to, how to, how to ignore, how to avoid their shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, there's, there's just, there's a lot of discomfort when it comes to talking about shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say that even when I was doing this work with, with my patients, same thing, like mm-hmm. I, there is an exercise where you take, um, you write down what the thing is that you're feeling shame about mm-hmm. and, you, and you, you put it into a little ball and you give it to the person next to you, but trusting people with your shame, it's an exercise mm-hmm. about, you know, can you trust others with your shame and, and trust them not to take advantage of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a huge, important lesson about the way that we practice vulnerability and that we practice, you know, ways of trusting others. And for people who, you know, who have been really hurt in the past and, and who have had, people who have misused their trust. I think it's really, really challenging. And I remember the first time that I did this, I was like trying to talk and teach people about this stuff. And also like when I was, you know, on the person that was holding my shame in their hand, because I was like, I want to talk about this. And also I don't want you to look at my shame. So yeah, it's very, very difficult to talk about this. I love that too, that it's that that saying like this person is holding my shame in their hand right because yeah we usually bury our shame deep down but then when you like you've written it down and handed it to another person that's like the epitome of discomfort and vulnerability yeah it's a lot of fun giving your shame to someone else <laughs> i'm being very sarcastic it's yes. not fun at all. It's very uncomfortable <laughs> yes uh but it's also so freeing, right? So yeah, the shame makes you feel like you're unworthy, as Brené Brown says in her definition. And our, as a, a very social species, humans crave connection. You know, even if you're the most introverted introvert, humans need other humans. And shame works by making us feel like we're not worthy of other humans. Mm-hmm. And so when you're sharing that thing that you think is going to make you unworthy and make someone reject you or make the world reject you, that's really terrifying. It is. Yeah. And I, you know, I find that we're talking about shame opens up such a really nice opportunity to talk about vulnerability and the importance of it. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think that that's exactly, you're exactly right. That we all are just wanting connection. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because sometimes we say, well, when I know that I can trust this person, then I'll share with them. But it doesn't work that way, right? We have to practice vulnerability and then see what they do with it. And I think that's one of the things that's that's really difficult to work on with clients sometimes is how do you practice vulnerability mm-hmm. in a way that is that still feels safe, right? Right. Relatively safe. Um, so starting off small and then and then seeing what people do with that. And that's it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What can you give an example of of if someone wants to try practicing vulnerability? What's a a beginner step that you could do with someone? That's a great question. So I think that something that people can try is maybe not sharing the thing that is like the deepest, darkest 
mm-hmm. you know, secret, the thing that they, that they haven't shared with anyone, but perhaps something that, um, that's been challenging for them, something that they've struggled with, but that isn't like a, a high risk item for them. Mm-hmm. And so sharing that with the person and seeing how they react. Um, a lot of times we have these beliefs about if I trust or if I share something with someone, then I'll be rejected. Yes. Um, and so I think that the only way that we can figure out whether or not that's true is by actually testing those beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so doing that allows us to actually test, is this belief accurate or not? If I share this with this person, are they going to reject me? Mm -hmm. Um, and what we find is with the people that we learn, we can trust, they don't respond at all in the way that we anticipate them to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. For people that are trustworthy, then you'll have confirmation that yes, you can trust them and and that they're not going to judge you and they're not going to reject you. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. And I think that once you know that you can trust someone with a smaller item issue, Mm -hmm. then you know, okay, but maybe I can, um, maybe this is someone that is trustworthy and I can share a little bit more with them. And then again, testing that to see what happens. Um, And I think that that's really how relationships develop and that's how we learn who we can trust and who we can't in a safe way. So sex and our sexuality is something that's very vulnerable uh, and, and many aspects of it can be very shame inducing um, if we feel like something about our sexuality is wrong or something we're interested in is wrong or something has happened to us around sex that we see as wrong. Um, there's so many ways, <laughs> like sex to me seems like a shame minefield. And that can really begin at an early age. Is that something you're you've come across in your practice? Most definitely. A lot of our learning comes from what's modeled for us, right? The, mm-hmm. the information we get from our, um, you know, the people who caregive for us, the people in our environments, in our culture, um, in the school system, and just so many other places. And, and I think that that's one of the things that, that from such an early age, people learn what's okay and what's not okay with just even exploring their bodies with whether or not sex is okay, when you think about, um, you know, lots of cultures have lots of ideas about what's okay and what's not okay when it comes to sex. When you think about religion, same thing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so a lot of people have gotten messages around how okay or not okay it is to even enjoy sex. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And there can be a lot of shame. You know, I was actually talking I hope that she's not upset with me, but she, my mom. So I was talking to my mom (laughs) about this and um, she was telling me that, and just for anyone listening, so I'm Latina and um, more specifically, my, my family's from El Salvador. And so I was talking to my mom about this the other day and she was saying that the idea that they had about sex and what it is, is that it's dirty, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, um, and this was more specifically for women, right? So right. For, for men, that was okay. But for women, it's not okay. And enjoying sex isn't okay. And so she was sharing with me that for a lot of the women that she's known, um, there is a belief that if you enjoy sex or, or she was saying, even if you move certain ways during sex, that there was, there were beliefs around this is an okay thing to be able to express yourself um, even mm-hmm. during sex and mm-hmm. as if you're enjoying it, because she said, the belief is that if you enjoy sex, then you must be a sex worker. Right. Oh. And so there are these very kind of rigid beliefs around, uh, sex and sexuality. And when you think about even young kids, when they're first starting to kind of even feel pleasure from touching themselves, um, the way that parents talk to their kids is going to really impact their ideas from a really young age about 
how okay it is to to feel pleasure from from exploring themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you know if a child's touching themselves and feeling pleasure, and, and a parent says, "What are you doing? That's so nasty." Mm-hmm. then that sends a very strong message that there's shame that comes along with pleasure that you experience from, from exploring your own body. Yeah. And a, a lot of sex educators trying to avoid that shame. One of the recommendations is things like, oh, honey, we don't put our hands down our pants in front of other people. That's for private time or just something like sort of normalizing the behavior, but putting it into the appropriate context as opposed to, yeah, like you were saying, just being like, that's nasty. What are you doing? Get your hands out of your pants. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So little things like that can be, can make a world of difference to a kid, which is, makes being a parent just completely terrifying. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Every little movement you make, every face you make, every word you say can be turned into a shame creation system for your child. Yes. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) And I know a lot of people who've experienced sexual assault or, and in particular, childhood sexual abuse may experience shame around their sexuality. Um, have, is that something you've come across in your practice? Yeah. So some of the clients I've worked with who have experienced childhood sexual abuse have really expressed quite a bit of shame. And it can be about so many different things, right? So I've had some people who've expressed shame about just even what it means to have experienced some kind of, to experience a sexual activity at such a young age, because mm-hmm. there are beliefs around when you should be experiencing those things and mm-hmm. that they shouldn't be happening unless you're married or unless you're older, or, you know, if the person was um, a family member, which is often the case, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of shame around, around that. And um, for some of the people I've worked with, it's shame around the way that their body reacted during the, during the trauma, Right. So I've had uh, male clients who experienced erections while they were being abused. Mm. And there's already, you know, so much fear and so much confusion going on. But then you add the extra layer of my body did this thing and I didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on. But if I, if my body did this thing, what did that mean? Mm. I think that another really confusing and added layer that comes up sometimes is when the perpetrator is a male, right? Mm. Um, And the person, identifies as heterosexual, but they experience this physiological response. There's a lot of confusion around what does this mean? What does this mean about my masculinity? And then that brings up a lot of shame, for, or at least it has brought up a lot of shame for a lot of the clients I've worked with who have experienced childhood sexual abuse and, and who have experienced physiological reactions during the trauma. Mm-hmm. On an earlier episode, I talk about the fight, flight, and freeze response, uh, all of which are possible during sexual assault and abuse, um, and commonly freeze. And so I I imagine that's something, too, that people who freeze during an assault and don't kick or scream or fight, like, there might shame might come from that, that they didn't, quote, respond in the right way. Yes, 100%. A lot of the, the, the people I've worked with, those are some of the beliefs. So depending on the type of treatment that, that I do with, with people, if we're working um, using a treatment called CPT, which stands for cognitive processing therapy, um, we're often looking at what are some of the cognitions that you have associated with the trauma. And for a lot of people, the, the beliefs are, you know, this is my fault because I didn't fight hard enough. This is my fault because I should have known that this was going to happen a lot of times what we're doing is really challenging some of the cognitions that people have. Mm-hmm. So really looking at what are the beliefs that you had about your role during the, the trauma mm-hmm. and 
and gently working with people to challenge some of those beliefs where, where it makes sense and validating some of the emotions that they have where that makes sense too. I know something that comes up a lot in sex education and sex research is that people feel shame about their specific desires. So it could be, for example, uh, a very common fantasy that women have is actually rape fantasies. And this happens for people who have been assaulted and people who haven't been assaulted. And often because nobody actually ever, ever wants to be sexually assaulted, but because people might have a desire to sort of role play that or like fantasize about it, they feel a lot of shame about that because it's, quote, something you shouldn't want. Um, And I imagine with other desires as well, there's a lot of shame, like just anything that seems at all out of the norm or anything that sort of violates things that society apparently supports can lead to shame. Yeah, I agree. I think that there can be so much shame around people's desires. For some people, there can be shame around the type of pornography that they're attracted to Mm -hmm. or the fetishes that they, that they enjoy. And I think that that goes back to, you know, what's modeled for us, what, what we believe is acceptable and not acceptable by, by society or by our community, right? Yeah. And there is sort of, yeah, that mainstream media that we consume that says sex should look like this and it should happen with these types of people. So that can, can contribute to it. And then also even within our friend groups, like some groups of friends, if everybody's kind of kinky then that's kind of the norm but then for someone who doesn't have that exposure like they don't know anybody else who's kinky and they really like rope play or spanking or whatever it might be and that's what they're fantasizing about and they think maybe they're the only one or that that it's wrong or bad or that they shouldn't think that Mm -hmm. that's very shame inducing uh dan savage the sex advice columnist and podcaster one of the things he talks about is like that most uh, fetishes or, or most fantasies, the hottest ones are things that are taboo, but those taboo things are the ones that are most likely to induce shame because they are taboo. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And so, and like Brene Brown talks about that when sometimes when we, when we experience shame, we respond with silence, secrecy, and judgment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And when we respond with those things, those usually are not really helpful in talking to our partners about the things that we're wanting, right? Mm. And so those things, um, we, we don't end up exploring those things because we're, we're worried about being rejected by our partners. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I, I find that that happens a lot in the work that I do with people is that people are scared to talk about these things and exploring mm-hmm. them. And so a big part of what they desire sexually goes either without exploring or it's done in secrecy and then they feel more shame about it. Exactly. That's a big component is that if you feel like you have to shove something down and keep it a secret, whether it's the porn you watch or, you know, if you're seeking out sex workers to get a specific need met or whatever it is, the more you add secrecy to that, the more you're adding shame to that. But it can be really hard. Like, how do you have those conversations with a partner if there's something sexually that you desire that you're not getting or that you haven't even talked about yet? Yeah, this is a really tough area. And I find that when I'm talking to people about how to talk to their partners about it, this can be one of the hardest things to do for people. They come in and they love talking to me about it. 
right? Because mm. yeah. <laughs> they say, well, I'm bound to, you're bound to confidentiality. So you can't say anything. Um, and also I don't live with them. So they don't really care what I think, exactly. but, but it's really, you know, they're partners that they care about and they're, concern is that they're going to be rejected or judged by those people. And so I think that first it's a matter of figuring out what is the likelihood based on what you know about that person, what's the likelihood that that person is going to reject you or judge you? Because the reality is that in some cases that may actually be an accurate belief. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that part of it is figuring out what's the likelihood. And then the other part is how do I start to practice vulnerability if it is a safe situation to do it? Mm-hmm. Right. And again, going back to what we talked about earlier, I think that sometimes what that means is doing it in small steps. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe it's it's starting to have conversations and opening it up with with your partner about what you know, what are some of the things that you like or what are some of the things that you have thought about mm-hmm. um, and trying to ask them and open up the conversation that way and then share a little bit about what your desire is. And, um, and seeing how they respond. And maybe that might not be the thing that you really, really want to do most, mm-hmm. but even, you know, testing out the waters and see how is my partner going to respond to things that, that I'm wanting or needing in our sexual life. Mm-hmm. So I do think for a lot of people, some of their shame might come from partners. Like, and, and because we live in such a sex negative society where there's so much judgment around sex, And when someone talks to their partner about something that they're interested in, I think it is definitely within the realm of the possibility that that, the partner is going to be like, ew, disgusting, you're gross, how could you ever want that? That is definitely a risk. My encouragement (laughs) would be to people, if a partner comes to you uh, talking about a a sexual interest of theirs that you find potentially like repulsive, disgusting, or your initial response is like, no to not put judgment on them and maybe take time to sit with it and just be like, you know, this is a lot of information. Uh, I was not expecting this. I need some time to process this. Totally. I agree. I think that it, it, it can be really tricky depending on what the, what communication is like in the relationship. Right. And so yes, I, yes. I think you're right. I think that stepping back and really also looking at what are some of the, the boundaries that we have in the, in the relationship around communication and around being able to be empathic with our partners, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And being empathic to what their needs are and, and, and recognizing that they may be different from our own. Because I think you're right that sometimes when we're met with things that are foreign to us, um, that can bring up a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. And so we can just kind of have the knee-jerk reaction of what is wrong with you? Yeah. And that is so immediately shaming, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that you're right sometimes even taking before we even start talking about sex and and what you're what you're wanting and sharing that with your partner is 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 perhaps working on communication first and and ensuring that there's safety around that mm-hmm. um, and sometimes even practicing vulnerability and saying this is really hard for me like i i gave this a lot of thought and i wasn't sure mm-hmm. you know if 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 i even wanted to share this because i this is something that that is hard for me that's something that i've been wanting and or that i'm curious around and I was worried about how you were going to respond mm-hmm. because what you think really matters to me. Mm-hmm. And so I need your support in this, or I need you to at least hear me out before you respond, which again is a really hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. What about things like sexual problems and sexual dysfunction? I imagine that must factor in or shame must factor into those as well. Yes. So 
for some people, they experience, you know, due to lots of reasons, whether they're medical or mental health, sometimes people will have, um, have issues that arise like erectile dysfunction, for example. And I see this a lot in the, the clients I work with who experience PTSD, um, mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, where um, they may have difficulty experiencing um, either they have difficulty achieving or maintaining erections, um, reaching orgasm. And so what I see is sometimes people will just kind of pull away pretty significantly from their partners. And so they'll stop engaging sexually with their partners mm. and that starts to impact intimacy in other ways, even emotional intimacy. And mm. so, and, and that can be really complicated by other beliefs like we talked about earlier. So if they have beliefs that people can't be trusted or that it's not safe to get close to people. Um, and so some of the work that we do there is um, starting to explore what intimacy can look like, even if it doesn't mean sex, right? So yeah. what does it mean to practice intimacy with your partner by even holding hands, by cuddling, by hugging, by kissing? Um, and, then, and then part of that then becomes, how do you start to have some of these conversations with your partner? And that can be really difficult for people because there can be shame around you know, what does it mean that I, that I have rectal dysfunction? Like, is my partner going to judge me around this? So that's a whole other area of, of shame that I've, I've worked with clients around. Mm -hmm. And because the social narrative is that men are defined by their hard penises. And if you are a man who doesn't have a hard penis, then there's something wrong with you. That's the messaging we get. And I saw that I've worked with prostate cancer patients, many of whom can no longer get erections after either surgery or if they're on um, hormone suppressing drugs. And that's what we see with prostate cancer patients as well, is that when they can't get erections, soon they just pull away from their partner because they think any sort of intimacy might lead to some sort of demand for sex, which they cannot deliver. So they just sort of decide to avoid it altogether. And I imagine the case would be too um, with people with vaginas with something like vaginismus or genital pain where they can't, uh, where their bodies won't allow them to be penetrated or it's very painful to be penetrated. And again, there's these societal messages that this is what vaginas are supposed to be for. And so if yours isn't doing that, then there's something wrong with you. And as we know, thinking there's something wrong with you is a great source of shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree that that can lead us to go into this shame, sp this shame spiral, right? Mm -hmm. That's really hard to get out of when you have these beliefs that I can't give my partner pleasure the way that I should be giving them pleasure. Right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it becomes, it, it definitely becomes this big shame spiral that starts to feel really hard to get out of. Yeah, definitely. So talking about shame is inherently a bummer. <laughs> Is there any hope? Can we leave this episode on a note of hopefulness? What can we do about shame? You know, what are the benefits of embracing shame and vulnerability? Yeah, I agree. Talking about shame can feel like a bummer. And also, it, I think that you can't talk about shame without talking about vulnerability. Um, you can't really talk about shame without talking about empathy. Um, because Dr. Brown talks about how empathy is the antidote to shame, right? Mm. Um, I love the I love how she talks about shame and Petri dishes and she talks about how if you have two Petri dishes, both of them have shame in them and you add secrecy, silence, and judgment, those three things will exponentially grow your Petri dish of shame. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but she talks about how empathy is the antidote to shame. And so when you add that, sprinkle that into your Petri dish of shame, there's no room for it to grow. 
And mm-hmm. I find that, that that's been true in the work that I've done with, with clients and, I, and, and even with myself, right? And, mm-hmm. and for everyone, when we start to actually practice empathy, and we're not talking about sympathy here, right? Because mm-hmm. Dr. Brown also talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy is being with someone versus sympathy, which is feeling for someone, right? So when we start to practice empathy toward ourselves or when we practice empathy toward other people, then we start to experience some of those, that connection that we really all want. Right? Mm. So I think that that's the shining light around shame is that there, there actually are things that we can do around it that can make us feel more connected to other people. Mm-hmm. And I've learned so much from you about shame and vulnerability. And I'm so grateful that I have you that I can tell you my shame I can I can hand you my shame and you can share your empathy and it has been like such an amazing gift for me so thank you for that of course Lisa Don I will always hold your little ball of shame whenever and wherever you want ditto Nancy (laughs) thank you so much for being here today this was such a delight I'm really thankful that you were able to share your knowledge with us thank you so much thank you for having me I really had a good time I don't know about you, but I'm still squirming about the idea of writing down something shameful and handing it to someone else. Shame is so uncomfortable. But I do like the points made about the importance of bringing shame into the light, sharing it with others, and being met with empathy. Those things are so, so important. The definition of shame is that it makes you feel unworthy. It makes you feel like sharing it will result in rejection by the people you love. It is so hard. But freeing yourself from that shame is really the best option. So much of our society operates on shame. If you act out as a kid, you're labeled as bad and sent to the corner or sent to your room, and that pattern continues as we get older. The shame component is magnified when it comes to sex, which is supposed to happen in private. We don't talk about sex in ways that are open and accepting, so it leads many people whose sexuality or sexual desires do not fit into what they see in a mainstream representation of sex to feel ashamed. I hope that hearing this episode and reflecting on your own shame around sex, and maybe even talking about it with someone, be it someone in your social circle or a therapist, will help you feel a little bit more free. that's all for this week's episode. If you have any feedback or peer review, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. Thank you to Julia Kaufman for transcribing the interview with Nancy. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DeweyKnowThings, and you can email me at DeweyKnowThings at gmail.com. DeweyKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.